Hey there, what are you doing? Just looking at birds. I'm your host, Chris. Join me as I interview avid birders to learn more about birds, birding, and those who love both. Today, my guest is Luke Safford, the Director of Engagement and Education for the Tucson Audubon Society. He coordinates the Southeast Arizona Birding Festival each year, is involved with the Tucson Valley Christmas Bird Count, and also leads a number of field trips including a weekly one at the Sweetwater Wetlands, where we're recording this episode today. It's good to have you on today. Thanks, Chris. Great to be here. Birding the same location each week must be quite a treat. I'm sure it makes it easier to find regulars or spot new visitors. What are some regulars you see here in Sweetwater Wetlands each week? Yeah, it definitely, you, you get very familiar with the birds uh, that are here year-round, especially like Abert's towhees. Mm-hmm. That's one that uh, we see almost every time right on the trail in front of us. Song sparrows, red-winged blackbirds, uh, they are all over as well. The male with the bright red wing patch coming right at you. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of common yellow throats. You know, the marsh birds like American coot, mallards, and uh, green herons. We have a lot of green herons here at Sweetwater. Mm. If you go to the same place all the time, you get to know the little corner of marsh or a little corner of mesquite where you're going to see one. It's kind of fun to have that consistency yeah during your last few trips have you noticed any new birds that you don't normally see here well just this morning when you and i were birding before the podcast we had the blue grosbeak fly out in front of us and i hadn't seen him here for quite some time we also had a summer tanager Uh real briefly but it's not one that see very often i sometimes i think it might be breeding here this year i also saw a female a couple of weeks ago okay but yeah that was kind of a cool one to see here during the summer sure waiting for some of the more rare rare birds to show up like a tricolored heron mm. maybe that'll come in next month or two hopefully yeah uh, speaking of the two birds you mentioned like the blue grosbeak where are those typically found in this area yeah blue grosbeak is one of those breeding birds that comes up they winter further south into Mexico and Central America, and then they come up to breed kind of late in the season, so like mid to late May. And you'll normally find them kind of out more, not here in town, but kind of like the more wild riparian areas, like around the San Pedro River mm. or the Santa Cruz River, like south, like towards Tubac, but then also kind of areas like Peña Blanca Lake, and uh, with mesquite, a kind of a mix of mesquite and water resources. Okay. As the Director of Engagement and Education, what does that role entail? It entails quite a bit. I just took that position uh, back in September, October of last year. And so I oversee all of our education department, both adult and youth education. We have uh, a lot of Uh, growth within our student education areas of Tucson Audubon. Just hired a a new student education coordinator, Mm -hmm. uh, Bea, and so she's really working hard on that. And Taylor Rubin is Mm -hmm. our volunteer and education manager, and they are doing a lot of great work with students. I know how important it is to you, too, of uh, getting our kids out 
into environment and learning about birds. But my role also oversees our nature shop, oversees all of our adult education and field trips. And then I also have a role with the Patent Center for Hummingbirds, which is down in Patagonia. Mm -hmm. Just all the engagement opportunities there, people coming from all over the world to see uh, the violet crown hummingbird and other birds there in Patagonia. And then, of course, the Southeast Arizona Birding Festival, the biggest event that we do as an organization. And so I oversee that and help coordinate that festival. You mentioned getting into this role in September. How did you get into this role? Yeah, so I actually started with Tucson Audubon as a volunteer right mm-hmm. here at Sweetwater Wetlands back in January of 2015. Hmm. My family and I just moved here from Washington State at the end of 2014, and I wanted to meet other birders and other people. So I joined this weekly walk here at Sweetwater, and I started volunteering as a field trip leader right after that. And then... Uh, Later that year, I was involved with the Southeast Arizona Birding Festival in Tucson Audubon, helping volunteer to run some field trips for them. Mm -hmm. The coordinator at the time took a different position, so I volunteered to help out more at the festival. Yeah, That turned into a contract job with (laughs) them. And then during the festival, I guess I just proved myself, and they hired me to be the volunteer coordinator and field trip coordinator in August of 2016. Okay. And just taking different roles within Tucson Audubon since then, and and then came into this kind of director level position last year when it opened up. I love Tucson Audubon and our mission to uh, inspire people to protect and enjoy birds, and I mm-hmm. wanted to have a, a larger role in that. I was going to ask, since you've been with Tucson Audubon Society for a little while, you had a chance to see a couple of different roles, some of the people doing different things. Yep. Uh, what grabbed your attention about this role where you thought, you know what, I would like to go for that position? You know, I love birds and I love people and I want to do everything I can to connect people and birds. Mm-hmm. And the engagement and education role is really kind of front facing, interacts with people all the time. And it has a really large capacity to bring people to birds and to help them see how they fit into the world, both how the birds fit into the world and how we do and how we can continue to facilitate that for many generations. Yeah. The biggest opportunity to inspire people to make that happen. And mm. I believe in that mission. And so that's why I took the job and why I'm very excited to continue in it. It does seem like a great role to accomplish that through. Yeah. You talked about when you first came to Tucson, one of the things you did was volunteer here with Tucson Audubon. I think it's safe to say you were interested in birding before you came here. Yep. When did you first take an interest in birding? Oh, that started really early. I was probably six or seven years old mm-hmm. and uh we lived next to my uh my cousin's grandparents and they lived on, on a lake this is up in washington state mm-hmm. so just about every morning i'd go over to grandpa and grandma eileen's house in the morning and they had a little scope that looked out over the water at the birds they were they were birders yeah grandma eileen made this little notebook for me to keep track of the birds that i saw and so we'd look out in the scope over the lake and look at the bird feeders and i'd write out, you know, all the birds I saw every day, mallard, song sparrow, fox sparrow, you know, all, all those good ones. And um, I still have those records from back in November of 1987. <laughs> and so that really got it going. And then, you know, my family was always outside, whether it was camping or fishing or hunting or just going for hikes. And my whole family and other grandparents just kind of fed into that, got me bird guides and stuff. And so it's kind of my love 
love for birds was never really diminished, but you know, my birding experience has kind of waxed and waned throughout the years. Mm-hmm. And then really like in my mid to late twenties, I got back into it when I was living in, in Yakima, Washington with the Yakima Valley Audubon Society and a couple mentors just kind of took me under their wing and I learned a lot from them. And, hmm. and then we moved here and just got, got involved. So, yeah. You mentioned as a child writing down the names of these different birds. Yeah. At that age, were you referring to a field guide to identify these birds? Were you just going and asking grandma? It was a combination of asking Grandma Eileen and using a bird guide. So my first guide was the golden field guide. It had like three different buntings on the front, if, okay. if I remember right. Blue with the three buntings on front. And so I read that book like almost every night before I went to bed, <laughs> you know, and uh, check off the birds I saw in the field guide. I still have it somewhere. I think the cover's ripped off now. Hmm. Don't use a field guide as often, just especially here at Sweetwater, because you know, just I've been in proximity with these birds for so long. But sure. I just got back from a trip to Maine, and you know, I just kind of was looking over the Sibley field guide, going through all the birds I would see there to make sure I just had them lodged in my memory when I went. Yeah, I know it's a long time ago, but when you remember leafing through those field guides, do you remember focusing more on the pictures and the visual identification, or did you pay attention more to where you might find the bird or the behaviors? Oh, well, back then, I want to say I focus on all of it. I remember <laughs> I do like maps a lot, so I remember always looking at the map, and in that field guide, they had like these little lines that corresponded with like if it was a migrating bird, oh, like yeah, what time yeah. of year that you might see it come through. So there'd be like a little dash line for like April 1st or a little dash line for May 1st sure. when you might expect it. So I remember seeing that. There's also like sonograms down at the bottom. I didn't really understand those at the time. Mm-hmm. I kind of still don't understand <laughs> those as much. Looking back at it now, like when I look at a field guide now, it's I like to read the little... Uh, sections about behavior. Yeah. The Sibley guide is really good with like the behavior stuff and mm-hmm. also like what kind of habitat it lives in. That's kind of what I've moved towards more and more rather than the color and where do you find it and what time of year and yeah, that kind of thing. Hmm. While you're thinking back there, what is your earliest memory of a bird? Mm. There's two that really pop out. One was I remember seeing a pileated woodpecker it's a huge woodpecker. We don't have them here in the Tucson area. Feels like double the size of a heel woodpecker with mm. a really bright red crown, black and white striping, kind of like that woody woodpecker type kind of. I remember walking out from where we lived at the time and it was up on top of the mailbox and it was huge. And I was like, what is that? And I remember going back to my book and initially saying, oh, maybe it's an ivory billed woodpecker. And mm. then I looked at the map. I was like, no, that's not what it is. It's a pileated woodpecker. So I remember that. I was probably six or seven. And then uh, a couple of years later, like eight or nine, we were living in a new place and we had feeders out and we had all these evening grosbeaks. Another one I've never seen here in Arizona, but the males are really bright yellow and black and white and big. Evening grosbeak was like kind of like my spark bird to like really get me into birding. Hmm. When considering your other memories of birds, what's a particularly memorable encounter you've had with a bird? My memorable encounters, the most memorable ones always happen with other people. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like a combination of the bird and the person. 
I guess it was probably about seven years ago, my son and I took a road trip down the Rio Grande Valley, mm-hmm. and he really wanted to see a green jay. He, he was like me, uh, seven, eight years old, leafing through the field guide and yeah. saw the green jay in there. It's like, oh, dad, I want to go see this. And so I remember seeing the green jay for the first time with my son. Hmm. And it was really cool. I mean, it's a green jay. So like a lot of times, like we think of blue jays and, you know, Stellar's jays are blue and Mexican jays are blue, but you just don't ever think about seeing a green jay. Yeah. And then uh, just a couple of years ago, also with my son, we had a sun bittern in Costa Rica. And the sun bittern was amazing. And uh, just having that experience of seeing this sun bittern with my son was really cool. Hmm. Yeah. Is it a rare bird to see over there? Uh, it's a hard one to see. I don't know if it's rare. I don't know my Costa Rica birds as well or like whether it, I know people have gone to Costa Rica to, to look for some bitter and sure. have come away not seeing one. Hmm. So it can be a little hard. Yeah. I think we just kind of lucked into it. <laughs> yeah. Very fortunate. Yeah. When going birding outside of your phone, field guides, binoculars, what's something you never leave home without? I was thinking about this question because I knew you were going to ask me it, but uh, probably my ball cap, my hat. I don't wear the big wide brim hats or anything like that, but almost always wearing like right now I'm wearing a a Zeiss hat, Carl Zeiss Sports Optics. Uh, I have my U of A hat that I'll wear or I'll wear my Mariners, Seattle Mariners hat. Got to have the hat on. Other than that, like I try to go really light. So uh, if I can get away with even not having water, a backpack or anything, I'll just go as light as I can. And I have a camera, but I hardly ever bring the camera just because I don't want to carry a bunch of stuff. Sure. Just the binoculars. Yeah, got to have the binoculars. That's for sure. When you lead field trips, is there something else that you bring along that you wouldn't bring along when you're by yourself? Uh, Sometimes I'll bring a scope. I don't always carry a scope with me at Sweetwater, hardly often, but... But if I'm going to like a um, looking out over a lake like Cochise Lake over at Wilcox or if I'm going to Patagonia Lake or if I'm doing anything along the coast or, anything, you know, mud flats, like I'll have a scope with me. I like to bring a friend. Hmm. Yeah, I guess that I like to bring a friend, too. I mean, sometimes it's good to go out solo, whether it's my son or Tom or Daniel or any of these other friends that go out with me. That's that's where it's at. Sure. Yeah. Just to clarify for some of our listeners, when you talk about bringing a scope along, I guess what are the connotations of bringing a scope along as yeah. opposed to a pair of binoculars? Yeah. So a scope, body scope allows you to uh, look further out. So like when you're at a lake, if you're looking at shorebirds, they can be really small and you'll see them just kind of running along the shoreline a hundred yards out there and yeah. you're looking with your binoculars and it just looks just looks like a little brown thing running around. And you put the scope on it, and you can see uh, the bill shape, whether it's droopy or whether it's uh, upturned or whether it's long or short. You can just kind of get those, whether it's uh, the color of the legs is really important on a lot of shorebirds, or whether they're yellow or black or orange or uh, just like the finer patterns on shorebirds or ducks that are way out there. Goals, especially like, uh, you know, trying to differentiate between herring goal uh, and California goal. And if you're uh, way out uh, away from them, you can't tell what color the legs are or what color the eye is or, you know, some of those finer field marks. Sure. And the spotting scope allows you to do that. Yeah. Just, 
they're bulky. You got to carry it around. They're expensive. So I don't even have a scope myself. I borrow the one from Tucson Audubon. <laughs> That's fair. <laughs> but uh, you know, we sell them at our nature shop. So if anyone's interested, you're more willing to come and check those out at our nature shop. Yeah, they're they're just bulky, and but they're they're so useful. If I lived in like San Diego, I probably wouldn't go birding without one. Hmm. So that makes sense. Outside of actually birding, what's something that you do that's somewhat related that you enjoy? Well, I haven't been doing it as much, but trail running is something that sometimes I've kind of combined with birding. Mm -hmm. You know, it's hard to go hiking or trail running and birding at the same time. But what I'll do is I'll kind of bird and slowly walk up a canyon. I've done this with the Cary Nation Trail. I've done this uh, Finger Rock Trail, Ventana Canyon, Sabino, of course, and uh, Hamburg Trail over in Ramsey Canyon and hiked up as far as I could go and birded up. And then uh, I have a little backpack that I'll just put my binoculars in. I'll have water on, <laughs> on this one. And then I'll just, I'll run back as fast as I can just to do a little trail running on the way back. Cause like you don't really stay in shape when you're birding cause you move so slow. It makes me feel better that I actually like maybe worked out a little bit to go <laughs> along with my birding. Yeah. <laughs> Now let's move on to our bird segment, where my guests have a chance to share a bit about a bird of their choice. And for this episode, Luke will tell us about the common gallinule. Here at Sweetwater, I've seen a few different birds that look similar to this one. What are some ways one might distinguish it from a mallard or American coot? Yeah, that's a good question. So uh, common gallinule is a very close cousin of the American coot. Mm -hmm. The biggest difference that really jumps out between those two birds is breeding plumage common gallinule has a really bright red and yellow bill mm. as opposed to the American coot, which has the white bill. Yeah. The red and yellow just, oh man, it, it pops out so much on a gallinule. Kind of reminds me of a piece of candy corn. If you're <laughs> familiar with that really special Halloween candy that I love and some people hate, Yeah, but that red and yellow just boom pops out. You know, an American coot is like, all this body's all that one kind of dark gray blackish color with the white whitish feet mm -hmm. the gallinule it'll be black coming down its uh, face and neck back of it though is really brown mm. especially when it's seeing good light almost like bronzy brownish color okay and then it'll have some white along the the sides of its body and then its feet its feet and legs will be really bright yellow and then in breeding plumage they'll have like these little red kneecaps too which oh. really stand out like you don't always see those they're kind of hidden sometimes but yeah. especially when they're getting ready to breed like it really starts to pop out the little red on there hmm. so they they also don't have web feet so if you see something that has web feet it'll probably be a mallard hmm. or some sort of duck sure so mallards are ducks and gallinules and coots are rails Okay. And uh, so rails don't have web feet, although coots have like these little lobes on their tail or tail <laughs> <laughs> lobes on their feet. Yeah. Uh, so they're almost like suction cups and gallinules will have more like chicken feet. They won't have the lobes. Hmm. So like a coot is kind of like in the middle of the mallard and the gallinule. Okay. But then the mallard is bigger, got the web feet, got the, uh, you know, the real duck bill and the gallinule while it also floats around in the water it'll have like a really more like a chicken-like bill i've seen some birds 
in the marsh that seem to match that description, but it doesn't really have the bright red bill. Right. Is that could that still be a gallinule? It could still be a gallinule, juvenile or young common gallinule that's not like in breeding plumage or in adult plumage won't have as bright of a red and yellow bill. It'll probably be kind of dull, almost like yellow brownish kind yeah, of. Yeah. And then the rest of the body will just kind of be a gray brown color. Mm-hmm. Those can be a little bit more difficult because young American coots will look fairly similar. Oh. They won't quite have the really white bill like the adult American coot has. And so if you can get a look at the feet, mm-hmm. a lot of times coots or gallinules, they'll step out of the water and you can get a visual of their feet and just see if it has lobes on it mm-hmm. or if it's just like the chicken-like feet. Okay. And I think young gallinules will have a little bit of that white edging along their mm. their kind of wing as well. Which the coot wouldn't have. No, they wouldn't have it. But their behavior is really similar. Mm-hmm. Gallinules will kind of, and I think coots will do this too, but they'll kind of like, bob their head a little bit while they're swimming yeah mallard won't do that a lot of you know ducks won't do that so that's a kind of if you see a a bird in the water that's swimming and it's kind of bobbing its head you could probably guess it's a gallinule or a coot and then go from there okay where might listeners find common gallinules they're distinctly marsh birds they love a combination of a little bit of open water but cattails and sedges and bulrushes and they'll sometimes you'll hear them first they're fairly secretive they're more secretive than a coot you know we see coots like out in the open all the time in the marsh um but gallinules will be a little bit more secretive and a lot of times you'll hear them first in the cattails kind of have like a trumpet call and then they have like some squawking and all these different if you uh go on internet google common gallinule sound or song, you'll hear all sorts of different types Mm. of noises that they make. Um, But they love being in the marsh. And then they're they're kind of more of a southern United States bird. So, like, we never had those up in Washington State. Mm -hmm. But they'll stay, you know, here in Arizona and down through Texas, like southern Texas. You'll get them, like, in the Rio Grande Valley. And then they'll go into southeast United States. And they have kind of been expanding up into, like, further north in the United States, but like if you're in Florida, you'll have them all around. You also have purple gallinules hmm. too down there, but the common gallinules just, yeah, they, they really like the marsh habitat and uh, Southern United States. And then all the way down to central and South America too. Hmm. What do they usually eat? So they eat a combination of plant and insects if you've been to Sweetwater, you've probably seen at different areas in Sweetwater, kind of that green covered pond with the duckweed. Yeah. They'll eat that duckweed, but then they'll also turn over other plant life to look for snails or other little water bugs, insects. And so they'll eat those too. Hmm. They're kind of omnivorous like that. They'll eat whatever they can. Okay. Yep. So they're not really making their way towards land for much of their food? No, uh, pretty much uh, they'll stay in the water. Uh, sometimes I've seen them on the edges of like golf course ponds. Yeah. Not as often as I do see, like I'll see coots like feeding out in the grass sometimes at golf yeah. courses. I've never really seen gallinules do that. They like to stay more in the cattails and I, I don't see them on land very often. Hmm. Yeah. 
Earlier you mentioned their feet being one of the ways to identify them, how they yeah. did not have the web feet. They have more chicken-like feet. Yep. Is there any other purpose for that chicken-like foot? Are they doing anything else with that foot besides uh, standing? Yeah. So they got these really long toes mm-hmm. on the feet. So like chickens don't have as long toes as these gallinules do. And so what the toes do is they help kind of spread out the weight of the gallinules so they can walk over like lily pads. Or they can walk oh. over vegetation that you know like we are like another bird stepped on like they'd sink into the water but they just like it's almost like a snowshoe how it spreads out the weight so they can use those to walk over the water a little bit in certain ways and then climb up into other vegetation cattails to climb up higher to catch other insects that they want to grab or something like that Hmm. i've seen them almost like climbing up into uh mesquite tree limbs just kind of like pecking stuff out of the, the tree. I mean, they don't go up that high, but I've seen sure. them do that. And then I think the young have like some sort of spur or something on their foot too that helps them clamber around. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. Yeah. So it seems like they can traverse water, like almost walk on water. Yeah, uh, yeah. Not so much like if you've heard of like the basilisk or Jesus Christ lizard that, you know, runs on the water. Uh, it can't do that. Yeah. But it can, it can traverse some some areas and so that's kind of like what rails do so like other types Mm. of rails like sora or virginia rail or clapper rail they have these long toes that allow them to maneuver around in the marsh where other birds can't Mm. so then do they rely more on that than swimming through the marsh yeah so galnul's kind of like the in-between bird like a coot they swim really well they swim better than other rails you know i've seen like sora swim and virginia rail swim but common gallinules are swim a little bit better than those, but not as well as like a mallard would or, mm. you know, something like that. They're able to maneuver around it, swimming and walking ah. fairly easily. Yeah. Yeah. Since they spend so much time in the water, are they nesting in or near the water? Yeah. Yeah. So I've never actually seen a specific common gallinule nest, but I do know that like grebes and coots, they'll build these little stands of cattails, whatever other kinds of um, vegetation they can get. They'll build it up and then they'll put their nest up on top of that little stand. Huh. And they'll have clutches of like anywhere from like six to 10 okay. babies, uh, eggs that are in there. So I think that's about the, the size of clutches I've seen here at Sweetwater. So I'm not exactly sure whether six to 10 is specifically true, but sure. that's what I've noticed. Yeah. When they have these young, do they stay around with the family very long after after being able to fly or swim away? Yeah, I've seen family groups stay together for quite a while. You know, I'm most familiar with the family groups here at Sweetwater. And right now, I think we have about two or three that are hanging around together. They start the babies hatch, I think, sometime in May. I've seen babies hatch in like June. You know, they're still together now. Yeah. It's kind of interesting to watch the family size sometimes dwindle a little bit mm-hmm. as the babies grow up, you know, whether they've been caught by uh, bobcats or I've, I've seen bobcats with common gallinules here. So, oh. so I think they stay together to try and support each other to live. Yes. So they stay around together pretty tightly for the first month or two. So it's usually family units, not necessarily a large group of 10 or 15 of these together adult ones. Right. That's one of the differences between gallinules and coots as well. So like mm. 
especially in the winter, you'll see like huge rafts of coots together. It won't just be a family group, but it'll just be like a huge flock. You know, like if you see a, a flock of pigeons or doves together, then there's other birds that like to be more solo. Yeah. And gallinules are kind of more of a solo bird. You will see them sometimes in, in groups, but mostly that's because it's a family group. Okay. They won't get in huge flocks together. Is there anything else about the common gallinules that you think our audience might want to know? I just think, uh, you know, to sum up a common gallinule, it's just such a funny looking bird with that red and yellow bill. And every time I see one here at Sweetwater, I'm, even though I've seen it almost every time, like it just brings a lot of joy to me. And when I'm leading other people out here, it's, is one that people love checking out. And it's like, oh, look, there's a gallinule over there. Oh, I've been wanting to see one for so long. And oh, yeah, there's a candy corn bill. Like I've described it with a candy corn bill for so long. Like now everyone else is doing it too. And uh, <laughs> so it's kind of just fun to hear that. And it kind of solidifies the group together. And yeah, it's just a cool bird because it, it goes back into the reason you hear it calling and all these weird noises it's making. And yeah, it stands out, but it's also kind of hidden. So it's. It's a good bird. A treat to see. Yeah. For this last question, I wanted to ask about something that probably takes up a lot of your time these days, and that's the Southeast Arizona Birding Festival. Oh, yeah. For listeners that may not be familiar with what a birding festival is, can you tell us what to expect when attending one? That's a great question because actually I had never attended a birding festival before I started coordinating this one. <laughs> so I'll just confess that. Yeah. So like from the outside looking in, I always thought of a bird festival as... Um, a whole lot of people getting together and like I'm an extrovert, but I'm also an introvert at the same time. And so like oftentimes I want to go birding with people, but not like a whole bunch of people. And so like I kind of stayed away from birding festivals. It's like, oh, you're just like surrounded by people hmm. like you can be or you don't have to be like the a birding festival is basically what you make it. it they're good to be a part of because it, it just reminds you that if birding has uh, these consequences that go out beyond just us. Like we're a bigger group of people. And when you're at a festival, you see all these people who have like a common, common mission is you to like, not just see the bird, but to love the bird and make the connections there. A festival has a combination of field trips that go out all over the place, big uh, nature expo with all sorts of different artists and optic companies and photography for ours, Arizona Game of Fish and um, the National Park System. Uh, we have live birds there. We have all these different presentations to learn how to identify birds better or how to get involved with advocacy or identifying scorpions. Like it's just not about birds too. It's about all sorts of different wildlife, dragonflies and moths and bats and all sorts of cool stuff like that you know a festival is a party too so it's a lot of fun it's getting together and eating and drinking together and just enjoying nature and birds as a community hmm. so i'm glad that i started dipping my toe into it by helping with the field trips and being a part of the festival and so like now i go to festivals all over the, the nation and hmm. it's amazing to see how big the birding community is and it definitely shapes and changes the perspective of a person when you see that. Yeah. Before we started recording, you talked about how people from all over the country come to the one here in, yep. in Tucson. Why might someone from another state attend this birding festival? We have people just from about every state 
come into Tucson and Southeast Arizona because we have such a unique set of birds here in Tucson and Southeast Arizona that you can't see anywhere else in the United States. Hmm. You might be able to see them. Well, not might, but you definitely could see them like Sonora and Mexico and Central America. Yeah. But if someone wants to see it uh, in an accessible region, you know, here in the United States, uh, this is a place to be for like elegant trogan. It doesn't have to be something that we go way out into the Madrean Oak Forest to look for either. It could just be right here in town, like Abert's Toei. You yeah. and I saw a bunch of Abert's Toeys this did. morning. And it's a really common bird that I have in my backyard too. Yeah. But unless you're Southeast California, Arizona, maybe up in Nevada and in New Mexico a little bit, if you don't travel those areas, you, you'll just never see an Abert's Toei. Hmm. I remember when I first moved here from Washington State, uh, seeing my first Abert's Toei, I was like overwhelmed by that. I was overwhelmed by Verdon. If you're in Washington or Wisconsin or Florida and uh, you want to see something new yeah. and accessible, you come here to Tucson. And Abert's Toei and Elgin Trogan are just two of a maraud of other unique birds that you can't see anywhere else. Sure. I'm sure a lot of work goes into the planning for an event like this. Uh, when you think of all the preparation and tasks that need to be done, what's one that you particularly enjoy? There are, there are a lot of tasks <laughs> that come <laughs> with coordinating a festival. My first love is always uh, field trips, mm -hmm. both interacting with field trip leaders, but then also the, the volunteers who clean out the vans and prepping the vans for all the participants to go out is kind of like behind the scenes stuff. And just yesterday I got together with three of our volunteer van leaders mm -hmm. and just prepping them with the details of refueling the vans and having everything ready in the morning so that all the participants have a really good experience getting onto the van and the field trip leaders know where to go and where to stand and how to collect everything. And so I really like working with those van leaders and no. uh, volunteers who are doing the behind the scenes stuff to make it happen. Um, that's kind of how it started too. So like, it's just cool to see people who are willing to give up so many hours to put in like the dirty work to make it happen. Yeah. I love working with them. And you know, the other thing I really enjoy is just uh, talking with all of our sponsors and just, they're excited about coming here. We have about 20 to 25 different sponsors that, you know, they spend a lot of money to help support the festival and support birding in Southeast Arizona. And so I, I love working with them too. Hmm. Just to clarify for some of our listeners who may not be familiar with it, what would one expect with a field trip? Because when I hear that term field trip, what does that usually mean? It's, it's good. A field trip for our festival can take a, a couple different approaches. We have some that leave in these 15 passenger vans mm -hmm. from our festival venue. And they leave early in the morning, anywhere from like five o'clock to six thirty. Yeah. So you know it's in August, so you got to beat the heat. They gather together in the foyer of the grand ballroom at the DoubleTree, and you could just feel the excitement in the air as they're getting ready to get on the field trip. And then you go out, get in the van, and you go to whatever destination you're going to, whether it's Madera Canyon, or Mount Lemon and Rose Canyon Lake, or Patagonia and the Patent Center for Hummingbirds, and you arrive on site get out of the van and you're with a, a field trip leader who like knows their birds and loves the area and you'll get out. And sometimes it's a little bit of a walk. Sometimes it's 
going to a certain place and sitting down for a while and but you'll uh, be led around by that field guide that tour leader and uh, uh, just be on the lookout for whatever kind of rare birds you see out there and then of course you return back in the van to the to the festival venue and but then we also have some meet on site trips so like if you don't uh, want to get in the van, you can just drive right to Sweetwater and meet up with a field trip leader here on site and walk around for a couple hours, you know, find the cool birds like Tropical Kingbird and Yellow Warbler. And mm. they'll keep a, a list of birds that they'll share with you later. So you can kind of get a trip report, both of a species list. And, uh, and then you come back to the um, festival venue and we have this huge big board with all the birds, this bird check off list so like you mm-hmm. go and see oh i saw yellow warbler is it checked off yet nope all right i'm gonna put the check on there and you get to uh just kind of add your your li- list of birds to the yeah what's seen the festival and you get to see that grow throughout the four days of the festival and it's really neat hmm. um but yeah the field trips that you know getting out and seeing the birds that's what most people are excited about so it sounds like some people might come, like you said before, from out of state to look for a specific bird. They might be here to see an elegant trogan. But if I'm new to birding, this might be a way for me to just see a bunch of different birds and be able to ask questions about the birds I see or, or things oh, yeah. related to their behavior. Yeah. So all the filter players are really knowledgeable and relatable. You know, that's an important thing. Like the good filter leaders love birds, but they also love people. Yeah. And so like whether you're brand new or whether you've been birding for, I don't know, 40 years or whatever, both the brand new birder and the f- person who's been birding forever, they're l- hopefully learning stuff, both of them together rubbing off on each other. And so you learn not just from the people who are out guiding the field trip, but you also learn from the other participants. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's a cool thing too about people coming from all over the, the nation and world is that you get a lot of different perspectives. And so even when I'm out leading a trip, I learn a lot from people who are just beginning. Mm-hmm. And uh, in fact, sometimes I learn the most important things from people who have never birded before because they see things from a different perspective. Yeah. I would say like if you've never been out on a field trip or birded with other people before to um, not be intimidated by that, mm-hmm. but to just remember that you have something to, to give to that group as well. Like from my perspective as someone who's birded a while, I really enjoy new people going with me because it sharpens me. Mm. Iron sharpens iron, right? <laughs> so even if you don't feel like you're too sharp, you got something to to add to the group. So even if this new birder doesn't bring a lot of knowledge, just bringing that curiosity. Bringing the curiosity, right? Questions, right? I always tell people ask questions, and shoot, so many times I'll get a question I don't, I I just don't know. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know the answer, but uh, that's what propels me to go and find that out and to learn it. Or there will be someone else in the group who knows it. And they're able to teach a group too. So, um, yeah, ask questions. Be curious. If you see a bird you're not sure about, be sure to point it out. And if it turns out to be something that's common, like a white-winged dove or a house finch, that's okay. Yeah. That's all right. You know, uh, birds are always kind of shapeshifters, so you never really know until you look at it. Every bird's important, so, like, pointing out those common birds, there's no shame in that. That's, That's good too. Still has value. Yeah. Having coordinated this event for six years now, do you have a favorite memory? Oh boy, uh, there's a lot of good memory. I um, and a lot of the memories have to do with people. Yeah, one of the coordinators of the festival who co-coordinated with me for quite a few years. Her name's Mia Hansen, and uh, I remember just like 
you know, the festival ends on a Sunday and some Sunday afternoons, just like looking at each other and like bags under our eyes and just like hugging each other and just like, Oh, how great that was. My favorite memories too, are like people coming back from their field trips and just seeing the joy in their eyes. Like I saw an elegant trogan today, or I saw a varied bunty and I couldn't believe how pink it was on the back of the head. When I first started coordinating it, it wasn't as, as big. So I was able to go out and lead some field trips. I remember leading one along the Danza Trail near Tubac and having a painted bunting. Hmm. The painted bunting is kind of rare for down here. Yeah. A male. And if you've never seen a male painted bunting, holy cow, there's so much color on that guy. Hmm. And uh, our group just being really excited for that. And I was really stoked about it. Overall, my biggest memory is from 2018. Our guest speaker was Bill Thompson the third. B- BT3 for short. <laughs> just a immense personality, mega dude in the birding world, just like everyone knew him. Just so full of joy. He led a field trip here with a bunch of students here at Sweetwater. Plays guitar and stuff when he did his uh, final culmination banquet on Saturday night and just like sang songs with us. Just such an amazing guy. He, he died later that year. Hmm. It's just uh, the legacy that BT3 left of inspiring people to protect and enjoy birds was amazing. And experiencing some time with him before he passed away was something I won't forget. And at that festival in 2018, Hmm. it was amazing. I bet. Our listeners have heard quite a bit about the Southeast Arizona Birding Festival. If they wanted to go to this thing for the first time, do you have any tips for them? Yeah. I, I would love for you to come and so I could meet you and we could talk birds all day if we could. Uh, it's August 10th through 14th this year. Uh, we do have rooms on on our field trips still. Most of them are full, but there's still some van trips and some meet on site trips that are that are open. Uh, all sorts of different price ranges and some are for free. We also have like a scholarship program. So if like if financial funding is something that's keeping you from attending the festival, we have form right there on the festival website that you can fill out and we could help fund your way to be a part of the festival. I would say don't delay, like uh, sign up now because you know a lot of the field trip and presentation slots do get filled up. If you miss it this year, don't worry. We're going to have it again next year, August <laughs> 9th to 13th, usually that second week of August. Don't let the heat scare you either here in the monsoon season, uh, which August is right in the heart of. It's just an amazing time to be here. It's very magical. That's why we choose that time. So it's definitely a question I get a lot. Like, why do you have the bird festival in August? Isn't it hot in Tucson? Well, yeah, it's hot. We're sitting in the heat right now, but we're able (laughs) to take it. And we have white winged doves going everywhere and tropical kingbirds out in front of us and Lucy's warblers and common yellow throats uh, going around our our heads, the, the bird life in August is amazing. Yeah. And I would say even it, maybe you don't want to register for it, but you just want to come check it out. We have a huge nature expo with over 30 exhibitors of all sorts of different types. It's at the Double Tree by Reed Park. So kind of right in Midtown. Yeah. So just on, uh, just north of 22nd Street, just north mm-hmm. of 22nd Street on Alvernon, just on the east side of Reed Park. We have free field trips at Reed Park, too, and at the Doubletree. So just come on over, check out the expo, and talk to different people there, kind of get an experience. And maybe next year you want to jump in more, 
Uh, there's also a lot of volunteer opportunities too. Like I don't want to uh, leave without saying that, you know, we're, we're always looking for other people to jump in and be part of our team. We have over 90 volunteers right now. Hmm. Just amazing. The group of people that we have. So I'm looking forward to seeing you there. And if our listeners want any more information about the festival, is the best place to go to the Tucson Audubon website? Yeah, tucsonaudubon.org. And then you could do backslash festival, or you could just click. There should be like a little festival icon that you can just click on there somewhere on the front page. Yeah. And then once you're on the festival page, you'll see different things that you can maneuver around, check out the field trips, presentations, see who's at the Nature Expo, all those sorts of things. Hopefully some of our listeners attend, and uh, I'll be there as well. Right on, Chris. Looking forward to it. I'd like to thank Luke for joining us today, and I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed the podcast, please leave a rating or review to help more people discover it. For pictures of the common gallinule and more from this episode, please check out the podcast's Instagram and follow at Looking at Birds Podcast. Until next time, keep looking at birds.